Warning. The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Is there anything else quite like the holidays here in New York? I don't think so. Honestly, I think it's the best place for the season. I mean, we've got everything here. From the ball drop on New Year's, to the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, to the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. And don't forget how each little neighborhood does their own celebration in their parks. Like setting up a giant menorah or canara for Hanukkah or Kwanzaa. Or the special trees they decorate in honor of their locales. Like the one at Lincoln Center that has all the ballet slippers. To the simplest of ones, like by us, that just has a basic string of lights on it. Hmm, the city really is magical this time of year. If only we could get some snow to really give it some sparkle. That would make it perfect. Almost storybook-like. everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the adventurous musical that is The Visit. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Odd, unique, creative, and yellow. These were all words that were used to describe this ambitious new musical that is the subject of our episode today, The Visit. This show perplexed and amazed audiences and even stunned several in the awards community when it became a dark horse for that year's Tonys. But before we can continue on with these vague descriptions, we must first set up the groundwork. The musical adaptation of The Visit was originally developed as a vehicle for Angela Lansbury and was scheduled for a Broadway opening on March 15, 2001. It had been scheduled for a tryout in Boston for December 2000 through January 2001. Frank Galati was the director with Anne Ranking as choreographer and co-starring Philip Bosco. However, in July of 2000, Lansbury withdrew due to the illness and subsequent death of her husband. Cheetah Rivera was signed as Lansbury's replacement and the musical directed by Frank Galati and choreographed by Anne Ranking was staged with Rivera and John McMartin by the Goodman Theater in Chicago, opening on October 1st, 2001. Galati said that because of the September 11th, 2001 attacks, the show did not move to Broadway. Quote, it was generally a success, but we couldn't get anyone from New York or California to see it. People weren't flying. In that climate, he says, quote, the whole idea of moving a very dark parable about human greed, the dark side of human nature, was difficult. 
Ranking said, quote, by the time you really could travel and people felt safe again, our run was up. Regional theater productions were considered as an alternative, while McNally rewrote the book. Then, in late 2003, the public theater announced it was mounting an off-Broadway production with Rivera and Frank Langella early the following year. But that too was canceled when financing fell through. The Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia's production of The Visit began previews on May 13, 2008, and officially opened on May 27. It ran through June 22. With direction by Frank Galati and choreography by Anne Ranking, Rivera was once again in the lead with co-stars George Hearn and Mark Jacoby. Prior to this production, a closed reading was held on February 19, 2008, with, among others, Jane Howdyshell, Florence Lacey, and Jason Donnelly, joining Rivera, Hearn, and Mark Jacoby. On November 30, 2011, Rivera and John Cullum, directed by Carl Andrus, starred in a stage concert at the Ambassador Theater, presented by the Actors Fund and the Vineyard Theater. A one-act version appeared at the Williamstown Theater Festival in Massachusetts, running from July 31, 2014 to August 17 of that year. The cast featured Cheetah Rivera, Jason Donnelly, Judy Kuhn, Roger Reese, Diana DiMarzio, David Garrison, Michelle Vientamilla, and Rick Holmes, with direction by John Doyle and choreography by Graciela Danielle. Music direction was by David Loud, who has served as music director for each incarnation of the show. This is the ideal time to introduce our design team. Book, Terrence McNally. Music, John Kander. Lyrics, Fred Ebb. Director, John Doyle. Choreography, Graciela Danielle. Scenic design, Scott Pask. Costume design, Anne Hold Ward. Lighting design, Japari Weidelman. Sound design, Dan Moses Schreier. Hair and wig design, Paul Huntley. And makeup design, J. Jared Janis. The show would arrive at the Lyceum Theater on April 23, 2015, where it would play a brief stint of 61 shows, closing on June 14, 2015. It is also worth noting that this is the final collaboration between the legendary team Kander and Ebb before Fred Ebb passed in 2004. The show was also the final production for acclaimed actor Roger Reese, who would sadly pass later that year in July 2015. Tom Nellis took over the role of Anton when Reese became ill. The visit would be nominated for five Tony Awards that season. So, let us now return to that famed little village where our story begins. The citizens of Brocken are awaiting the visit of their very own Claire Wasker, now Claire Zakanasian, the oft-widowed richest woman in the world. It's been a lifetime's absence during which they'd have, they have fallen into utter bankruptcy. In anticipation of this visit, Anton Schell, a once prosperous shopkeeper, remembers himself and Claire as young lovers. The mayor and the schoolmaster have prepared a special welcome 
for their distinguished visitor. All Brocken marvels at the visitor's glamorous bejeweled presence. Claire explains the reason for it. Her warm greeting to Anton makes the mayor realize that Anton is the key to asking Claire to relieve them from their misery. Anton is confident he can. He leaves to rendezvous with Claire at their old trysting place, Conrad's Village Wood, while the others exult in their good fortune. Only the schoolmaster has forebodings about her visit. Alone in the woods, the two old lovers and their younger selves reminisce. Anton is convinced that she will be their salvation. Everyone prepares for the gala banquet that evening at the Golden Apostle Hotel in Claire's honor. The mayor and the citizens tell Claire of their inexplicable decline from prosperity to utter bankruptcy. Claire then recounts her version of events, which differs considerably from theirs. In exchange for rescuing them from financial calamity, she asks for the life of Anton Schell. The mayor expresses outrage, but the seeds have been planted. Claire reveals that it is she herself who destroyed Brocken's once booming economy. She is resolute in her terms, Anton's death. Claire's entourage, her butler and two eunuchs, swear eternal fealty to her. Alone in the attic above his shop, Anton wrestles with his fears. The schoolmaster visits Anton and tells him how the village is turning against him. Anton struggles with his conscience. Embracing his fate and at peace with himself, he invites family for a drive in his son's new automobile. But, like everything else in Brocken now, on credit. Knowing Anton will join her in their old trysting place, Claire reflects on the incidences that have brought her to this moment in her life. The lovers meet for the last time to discuss their whole past, including a child who had died, before the town meeting that will decide Anton's fate. The visit over, Claire tells her butler, Rudy, get the bags packed, we're going to Capri. The, the end. end. So now let us discuss the parts that we like, that we thought could use improvement, that all of that jazz. Yeah, so I remember this show was hyper-stylized. Yes. Um, I got to start off by saying I don't remember much about this show, but I do remember that. I remember it like just being like higher art. Mm-hmm. Like, especially compared to most Broadway shows that I'd seen, or Broadway musicals that I'd seen at that time. It felt much more like um, an operetta, almost in my opinion. I remembered the story for the most part, and I was really captivated by it, you know? I remember learning this tragedy. You know, of course, Cheetah Rivera was this, you know, very wealthy woman. And it's like, okay, and we have this very poor village. Cool. And when we're learning this dark history around her, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes out a, about, I want this man's life because mine was destroyed. It is a, it's a moral conundrum kind of thing. You as a whole town destroyed my life. And if you want me to save you, I want one Your of life. you. Yeah. So it's literally, you know, it's that question of, well, it's it's an idea based off of 
1967 philosopher's idea, uh, the trolley problem. In other words, sacrificing a few for the good of the many. Mm-hmm. Um, an ethical dilemma of like, if we killed one, we can save a hundred. So what would you do? Does one human life have more value over many human lives? And, you know, when we talk about it in the abstract, of course we can talk about it in the abstract and it like has no bearing, but could you imagine being in a real situation where you're faced with that? Because I mean, every human life has value. And every human life, I mean, people know each other. Someone knew, you know, Anton had a family and everything like that. So it's not as easy as, well, my life was ruined. So tit for tat. Do you know what I mean? Like it really posed a moral dilemma. And so I found the story to be really fascinating and going, oh, well, what would I do? And seeing how everyone reacted differently. They had been in utter bankruptcy, but yet they were surviving. So it begs a question of how much are you willing to give for comfort? Mm-hmm. Well, and so I think something to keep in mind with this show, uh, it is a adaptation from a play by Frederick Durenmott. Is it I a think. play or a book? A play. Oh, okay. Um, but it was... Uh, it was originally in German, so this is a German play that premiered in 1956. Right. Right? And so you have to think of what the people in Germany had just gone through. As I say, post-World War Two, And everything that happened with World War One. There, there was a lot of things that were connected to money and bankruptcy and the, like, the trauma that happened to people in societies. I would be interested to know more about this playwright and where his political and social views land. Because I'm more interested in the World War II because the idea that they are in utter bankruptcy and it is just 10 years, about 10 years after World War II. Where, where does he stand on things? Because if once we know that, we would know who Claire is supposed to be. And we also will have an idea of who Anton is supposed to be, if that makes sense. Right. Well, so um, Frederick Durenmott was a proponent of epic theater. Um, which epic theater was a um, like a response to the trauma of World War II. And so oftentimes they were people who were left-wing, who were very liberal. So against the Nazi party. Yes, against okay. the Nazi party. So Anton and- is probably a former Nazi soldier of some sort. And the village is probably someone who... I mean, they're probably just a village, but they probably didn't do anything to help stop what the Nazi party did. And Claire is probably a victim of World War II, who's gotten what is hers back and now has returned. And these villagers are like, hey, help us out. And she's like, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Well, and so that's the that's the beauty about this show being a piece of epic theater um, because epic theater emphasizes the audience perspective and reaction to the piece. Um, rather than trying to, it's more about the audience's reaction rather than what the message the show is trying to make. Does so, that make sense? So, yes, yes. So this builds on my other thought that I wanted to throw out there, if I may. Did you have more to say? No, that's okay. So this is a show for me 
as we were putting this together, and this is why I love, we put our notes together separately and then we come together and we discuss. And I like our back and forth. But like as I was putting my notes together, I don't remember much about the show. I just remember I wasn't like the biggest fan of the show. And typically, and you know how our motto is, if you didn't like a show, you got to figure out what exactly you didn't like because guaranteed you like nine out of the ten things. I'm not going to go and say I didn't like the show. I haven't figured out what wasn't jiving for me, right? Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I only saw the show once. I've only heard the music once. And I truly believe that the reason why I haven't put my finger on where I stand on the show is because when I saw the show in 2015, with, at that time, my understanding and knowledge, my, my basis of theater, it wasn't enough to to take in and understand the visit in one go. I did not possess the, uh, the amount of information to be able to do that. And so when I went that time, I, look, I was naive in 2015. Okay, I was. I'm not going to sit there and say I, in 2015, even at that age I was, I knew everything. No, no, no. I was gaining knowledge, but I wasn't there. I'm, and I certainly wasn't where I am now. And I still don't know everything. There are shows that still perplex me and then I sit and ponder it. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I saw Ain't No Mo, and I knew it's a great piece of theater. I still sit there and I think about it, though. And that's what theater does. But here's my point. I sit and I wonder about that show and I realize that knowing that it was nominated for like best musical at the Tonys and that, I was trying to put it in a box of what I expected it to be. And when it wasn't delivering what I expected it, I started writing it off. Mm-hmm. And, and that's bad. But again, right. I was naive. And so I was getting information that I didn't know what to do with. And this is the thing about theater that I don't think a lot of people understand. We were having this discussion when we were going over our notes last night. You can go and get a degree. You can go study theater and you can go master your craft. You know, um, I got a degree in acting. Okay. I spent years learning how to dance and act and sing and that, right? You can get those, those um, vocational skills. You got your degree in makeup and wig design, and then you got a cosmetology license. You know how to physically do hair and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the thing about theater and about the performing arts that separates it, in my opinion, from every other career out there, it's a humanity. And especially theater, it's based on the human experience. It's mm-hmm. something you cannot learn from a book. Mm-hmm. It is something that you have to experience right and the more experiences you get the more shows that either you do or you see or you experience the more that you build that that's the wealth of knowledge that's the pool you 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 grow that you can draw from so that when you see shows that do not fit the standard what we're expecting, you know, a jukebox musical, or what have you, something that really goes against the grain, you have tools to help you draw going, why did they do this? Why did they do that? You can start to connect things and you have a greater experience and understanding of that. And I think that's what I was lacking seven years ago, almost eight years ago, when I saw the shows, I didn't have enough experience 
seeing the show to understand, oh, this is what they're doing. It's a much higher art musical. We're challenging the audience. We're, I really have to go in there and finish the sentences. It's not skin, you know, it's not on the surface. It goes much deeper. And that's one thing that in working on the show, I've realized is it's so important to go and experience this because it will open so many doors well, and to understanding theater. What you're saying about, you know, theater being a representation of the human experience, you have to experience it as a human to understand the human experience. You know what I mean? And so that's why I find um, things like epic theater and shows like this so fascinating because I do, I enjoy the theology behind the storytelling and where those theologies were thought of. Right. You know, and so the fact that we have a show like this that is very smart and avant-garde um, that's the word I was looking for the entire time. Avant-garde, yeah. You know, it's... It, there's always something more that can be picked apart. And that's why I love pieces like this. Um, so why don't we go ahead and dive into our little boxes so we can yeah. have a better understanding of what exactly it is we're breaking <laughs> apart. Right, okay. So let's start with our set. I did love the set of this show. I love that... It had this like bare cloisters looking set with the arches and the dead vines wrapped around mm-hmm. it, around the pillars. And then they just added the use of these suitcases and a coffin to complete the different scenes. That was kind of essentially it. There wasn't a lot that they used. Mm-hmm. It was more about fill in the blank and create the space yourself. Right. So we just had this giant... What like um, I want to say like a banded cathedral. Well, I would say it's Flying more like buttresses. A, <laughs> I would say it's more like um an abandoned like community space or um even like a manor. Yeah. Because you know there aren't the really really I mean you know this is where we're starting to see that breakdown of the class the caste system. Well, what's interesting is when you brought up the playwright. Mm-hmm. Right and everything, it looks a little post-war, mm-hmm. but we had that in the background the entire time. Well, and it's that decay and and damage, right? And it, but then and then after that, it was like I said, the coffin and the suitcases. We had it simple. It was almost like there is no money to to paint it. Oh, and we did have the car. I think. We had the little cut out of the car. I think, although I think maybe they're on suitcases again. I don't remember a ton. But uh, the other thing that I really remember, and I love this, Scott Pass did a great job on this. I remember the checkerboard, the black and white checkerboard floor, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed because of the story. And so to me, the checkerboard floor with the black and white reminded me of a chessboard. Mm -hmm. And with the conundrum being presented by Claire, this was almost like one big chess match. Right. Well, and the fact that everything was in shades of gray and muddy gray and whites and blacks. And I think that helped to really communicate how, I guess, dire the situation was almost. 
but then of course everything that Claire had was much cleaner. So speaking of cleaner, why don't we move on to those costumes that were cleaner? I found it really interesting that the the Brockens essentially were all on that palette that matched the set, those muddy browns, the grays, uh, just the, the kind of worn look, right? But then you had Claire and her eunuchs and her butler that were in clean white and black. And that's that's two distinguishable things to know because the Brockens were not in black. Closest no. they got were gray. And then you had either the schoolmaster or the mayor that was in this red thing, right? And then the thing that really caught my eye um, was, and I know you're, you're itching to talk about this, and I want to know what your interpretation is, yellow. So if you paid attention, there were bits and pieces of yellow for the most part, each person in Brocken had at least one piece of yellow, and it was mostly in their gloves. And it was a particular shade of yellow. So the two parts I want to, the two things I want to point out with that is one, this particular shade of yellow lived in a greeny gold. Okay. It was kind of like a highlighter gold. Yes, it was, and it was, it stood out like a sore thumb. And it is because it represents greed. The yellow represents greed because you can go back and forth on the color representation because a lot of people will be like, oh, greed equals green because it's money. But envy reads green because you have the green-eyed monster of jealousy. Greed tends to be golder because gold is greed. Um, You know what I mean? Like the actual, you know, money is gold and so it's this really gross and i mean that in the best possible way this gross yellow color um that really represents that that greed and as you look at each of the people and their costumes or whatever parts are you know yellow there are some people who have more and some people who have less um but it really stands out but i think having it be you know, their hands or their coats or their shoes tells you a little bit more about that individual's character, where that, how they got that greed or who they had to hurt to get those greeds. Because it's kind of like that concept of blood on your hands, except for the greed is on your hands. Well, see, that's a really interesting interpretation because the first time I remember seeing the yellow is obviously with Claire's entourage. And I remember their shoes being yellow. And their gloves being yellow. And the way I took it, and then I remember that later on in the show, the villagers all had yellow items, whether it was a yellow fur or yellow shoes or yellow canes or something. And then they were in that yellow light. Mm-hmm. And this was almost, this is, I think, when they were planning that they were going to kill Anton. I took it as if you were wearing yellow you were kind of almost marked as property or that you owe Claire. It's kind of Claire's mark of ownership. The Midas touch, if you will. Okay. And I I don't remember much about the show, so I'm just piecing what I can remember together. But I didn't think about... See, I don't know color as well as you do, so I didn't think about the greed idea. But that 
is a really fascinating idea because that puts everything in a whole other lens. Because I did wonder what is keeping this butler and these eunuchs serving her. And of course, if it's greed... She's the richest woman in the world. Might as well stick with her. Yep. It's a, it's an act of self-preservation, which is what this whole show is about, is using greed for self-preservation. And the other, another um, costume piece I want to talk about that I found very interesting is uh, actually Claire's necklace. So what I really want to dive into is Claire's costume. Because here's what I found fascinating. It's all white. It's beautiful white. And then this red like ruby necklace this huge ruby necklace and what i took that to be is she was wronged okay she had a tryst with anton they they made love she had a child okay mm-hmm. and if memory serves me right the child died mm-hmm. because the town essentially cast her out to the woods and the child died okay and what I took that as is the town wronged her, so she's kind of like that pure, angelic kind of character. Does that make sense? I would disagree about the um, yeah, calling not, her pure angelic. Pure angelic is not the word I'm looking for, but you know what I'm talking about. She has taken that and turned it into her... She she's she's righteous, I guess. It's her inciting character moment where she's just basically like, okay, well, you did me wrong, so now I'm going to use every moment and every breath and every fiber to get you back. She she's in the she's the one harmed. She's our heroine, Mm -hmm. if you will. But she's like an anti-hero. Everyone's bad in this show, but she in 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 her version of the story, in a way, up until she asked for Anton's life, she is the heroine. And um, then that big ruby necklace, <clears throat> because of what she did, why was she cast out? Because essentially she had sex outside of marriage. I totally saw the scarlet letter. It could have been a simple ruby necklace, but if you look, I mean, it is huge. Well, and see, I got my interpretation of it was that it was like showing that she's a black widow. Um, Which is interesting because she also was in Kiss of the Spider Woman, by the way. Right, but that's that's kind of the vibe I got because, you know, she has blood around her neck and it's dripping. Like, those jewels, it looks like a web. Oh, that also is really good interpretation. I love how deep we can go into this. Like Right, and they're oh. all just these tiny little pieces. And I, yeah. The last thing I kind of want to dive into on the, char- on the character, on the costume end, because... I mean, I think if listeners have either seen the show or they look into the show, the eunuchs and the butler, the first of the eunuchs, they had these white painted faces, these big white circles painted on their face. And then both the eunuchs and the butler were in sunglasses the entire show. Mm-hmm. Um, it was and it was very interesting. It was this very interesting choice. And I was like, why are you the only ones in the cast like that and what i feel like is and again this is a stretch and i'm sure you're going to come up with a better interpretation they're justice they're the jury and justice is blind that's why they wear the glasses they weren't there for the events 
So that's why they're in town with glasses on. They have their blinders on. Hmm. See, mine, my interpretation goes kind of a different direction. Um, and it, I think that it has to do with their loyalty to Claire. Because basically, in order to, you know, to be in her good graces, you have to, you know, uh, uh, let's think about it this way. For a, a male to be, you know, subservient to a woman, there's a certain amount that you have to give up to let that happen in traditional um, gender roles, right? There's a lot you have to give up, so that's why they're eunuchs, because they've given up their masculinity to have the protection of Claire. So that being said, their faces are painted white because they no longer have their own opinions allotted to them. They believe what Claire believes, so it's black and white. Everything is black and white. Their tuxedos are black, their faces are white. And then their hands are greedy. And their shoes are greedy, their canes are greedy. Interesting. And then the reason for the sunglasses is because, like you said, it's blinders, but it's blinders to only what Claire sees, only what Claire wants. We only do what Claire wants, so therefore we don't need to see anything because we see what Claire sees. See, like I said, you'd come up with a better interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's brilliant. So I, thought, I think the costume design is, is smart. Mm-hmm. There's a. This is what I mean by the difference of what seven years can do. I didn't pick up on any of this then. I was just like, "What is with the yellow?" <laughs> um, let's go on to the lighting. I thought it was very well lit. I thought there was a great use of shadows, of mm-hmm. these great heavy shadows and this beautiful soft lighting. It was okay. Here's what I loved. Between the lighting and the haze they used, the whole show had this beautiful memory look to it. Mm-hmm. And and also, the like, when we had these moments that weren't like a scene downstage or something, when it was like a full stage scene, it almost looked like we were at a train station. Yes. Like an old abandoned train station. Well, yes. And what does, you know, what does travel represent for things it's a journey it's something new in in terms of life exactly and so having it feel like that and then having like the light pour through different holes or whatnot in the ceiling just uh, to create those iconic train station looks not just grand central but european train stations and almost it's like that and 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 given a modern audience is what i'm thinking of it's that reminiscent of days of yore Mm -hmm. which is what the the villagers wanted so it was smart. Well, and then you do have some of those flashback scenes that are lit from the floor. Those floor lights, yeah. Right, yellow. Yes, and to it have had that, that green, vaudeville look. Yeah, that greed spill out. And it was interesting because it played into these canes that they, you know, the, the yellow canes they had or the choreography, the kick lines that they had. So having that vaudeville lighting effect played into what was actually happening, mm-hmm. which was good. It, it, it didn't juxtapose to a point where it was like, ah, you know um and that is a credit to of course our next box which is direction and this was interesting directing choices first of all it's john doyle and this is the first i believe john doyle uh show we saw and in true john doyle fashion less is more and everything that we've learned about john doyle and everything we've seen less is more but also every movement on stage has a meaning and a purpose um, it's another reason why I want to see the show again, 
because there's so much to take in. Nobody exists on stage just to exist. There's a reason for them being there. Right. Um, I found that this was very ambitious to have the two parallel stories being shown, both in the like the then and the now, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it worked. We saw young Claire and Anton at the exact same time as older Claire and Anton. And at first I was confused because I thought this was like a young couple in the now, but it turned exactly. out it was in the... It was, them back yeah, then. young me was very confused as to having both couples represented on the, the stage at the same time because I thought that they were two separate entities. Older me now realizes that it's they so were. It was smart. the past being played out in that front Anton of us. Anton and Claire have changed, but the villagers haven't. So the fact that these two stories, these two different stories or two different time periods, can exist in the same space because the common variable between the two which is the villagers mm-hmm. hasn't changed mm-hmm. we can tell these two different stories at the same time because the people that will help they haven't changed in either story mm-hmm. i was like that's so smart mm-hmm. um this is the kind of show that's right in john doyle's arsenal right in his in the sweet spot for him he knows what to do with it he knows how to craft it so that all the parts are in sync and he did that here and seeing a few of his other works now, I'm like, okay, this, he takes lesser known shows. He's not a big blockbuster musical kind of guy. He almost takes like those odder shows and he makes them brilliant. He finds a way to pull out that brilliance out of the text, out of the music and just, I don't know. It bring, Look at the conversation that we're having seven years later about a show that at the time we saw him, we went... I don't know, man. At a show that only played 61 performances. Right. But it, I, I don't know, it, it was so, it, it clearly was impactful. And that's the, the lasting impact of John Doyle. To be able to go, you know, there's something that we can say with the lighting here. What is the, what is the meaning of this scene? What is the meaning of this image? If we hit this button at the end of this song... And we have this image for all of five seconds so the audience can see it during the applause. What will that say? See, this show is one of those ones that I would love to go to the archives to watch. Exactly. At Lincoln Center, the Public Library for Performing Arts. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm thinking that in the new year we need to go get a public library card and just go and sit down and watch it again. I agree. And I think the person that paired so well with John Dogel's vision of staging as a director... Uh, is Graciela Danielle's choreography, which leads us to our next box choreography. It was fabulous and beautiful. What I love about Graciela's choreography is the shapes and the movements. I love how they hypnotize. And where most choreography that you see on a Broadway stage speak to you, this didn't speak this song. Right. Well, the way I can, the parts I remember is like Cheetah Rivera gentle dance moves with her cane and not very big extensions. Yes. Reminded me of a dancing queen's chess piece. Yes. Yes. The number that they did at the Tonys, I think it's love after you. God, I can't remember. Anyway, I remember again, seven years ago being like, that's the number they're doing from the show. Woof. No, it was beautiful because it's this 
it's towards the end of the show uh, when they're meeting back at their rendezvous spot. And she's singing this beautiful, like, remembering song about their love. And it's a pas de deux, if I remember right, from ballet, where the two young people are dancing. Mm-hmm. But it starts between young and old Claire. And they share a moment. And young Claire clearly is, like, dancing like, you know, a young person can. And old Claire is also dancing, though. But she's not completely all at it because she's older and that's fine. But the way that their bodies speak, again, it's not words that we see. It's beautiful singing that comes from it. The mm-hmm. way that it just flows. And then Cheetah Rivera like really goes for it and shows like, I'm still young and I can do it. And you can just hear it and you can just hear her singing. And I'm like, that's beautiful art. That's beautiful movement. That's that's what we come to the theater for. And Graciela's movements helped to elevate, in my opinion, the show to a higher art form than mm-hmm. just theater. It bumped it up into that avant-garde, into that operetta. And I love that different styles were drawn upon for the show. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned with the lighting, there was a little bit of vaudeville movement, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have some, you know, uh, waltzing dances going on because the we'll get into the music, where the music came from, but... It was just beautiful. The last thing that I want to say about choreography is I love the incorporation. This is silly, but I notice these things. I love the incorporation of canes across the board in the show. Because Claire and her entourage travel. I mean, they all had canes. Mm-hmm. And to have that. I don't want to call it a... Pr- is it a prop or is it a it's costume? A okay. It's have prop. that prop be ever so present. I'm so glad that Graciela incorporated that into choreography. Otherwise, I would have been like, so is it a gimmick or what are we doing? It can't be a one thing like, hi, I have a cane, but I can dare. You know what I mean? Like, Well, and because, I mean, having the idea of dancing with canes is very vaudeville. It's very fussy, you know? And so to be able to take it and be able to tell a story with it, that wasn't Beyond, hokey. Yeah, that wasn't the humor. Yes. It was really important and beautifully done. So I, I alluded to this, but I want to move into the music. So at, at the time, this is probably my least favorite part of the show, which is horrible to say it's candor and ebb. But again, I've only, I've only seen and heard this once. I need to give it another uh, go because that, that's the only way it's going to be a fair judgment. But the music is based on... Um, off of Eastern European waltzes, um, which, you know, uh, not really high on my Spotify playlist. Uh, <laughs> I definitely don't walk around with my phone and be like, oh my gosh, this is my jam. Eastern European waltzes, whooped. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with them, just not my thing. And juxtaposing those waltzes, there were some more familiar musical theater sounding songs. So at the time, for me, it just didn't create this good cohesion. I was like, I don't, I don't know what the, the, the voice we're going for here is. You know, we, we have this very, first of all, Eastern European music to the American ear doesn't, it's, it's, it's an odd sound to us, uh, particularly because of minor keys. We, the American ear is not a fan of minor keys. We just, we aren't. That's just the way we are. European, and particularly Eastern European, 
uh, ears love minor keys. They don't hear it the same way we do. Mm-hmm. You know, where we go, oh, that's sad or that's angry or whatever. That's not what they hear. Mm-hmm. You know, we prefer our music to be in major keys where we're like, yeah, that's happy and that's good and that's uplifting. So our American ears are hearing these Eastern European waltz inspired songs and like, oh, so I mean, it, it fit the story, sad and that d- depressing kind of aura. But then we had these musical theater moments that had those wide major chords and power chords and such, if you will. And that's where our ears went, yes, I love that, you know. And for me, I was like, what are we trying to do here? I can't figure that out. I was ignorant then. Why can't both styles exist in a musical? Mm-hmm. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't they give us both? So I need to listen to the music again. I need to dive into it because I also feel like Candor and Ebb's style has changed and matured and gotten much smarter as uh, as any composer or lyricist team has gone. You know what I mean? It's not going to be Chicago. Clearly, that wasn't that wasn't the pinnacle of their work. So where do they go from there? What inspired them? This is amazing. Because the other smart thing I, I love that they did is they used falsetto and countertenors. Um, which was something I've never seen in musical theater. Um, and that was brilliant. Right. This is taking more of that operatic influence. And if you don't know what a countertenor is, it's a, a male, a tenor, who can basically have the same rage as a soprano. Um, the only place I know of that uses a countertenor, do you know? Miss Sunshine? Bingo. From Chicago? Yep. Mary Sunshine from Chicago the Musical. Uh, uses a countertenor. Other than that, I don't know of another show. Uh, oh, Hair, I think, uh, uses that countertenor. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of a foreign thing to musical theater, especially in the role that this was doing, because usually countertenors are masked as women in mm-hmm. musical theater. This was, these are men. So it was really smart and really impressive. I just want to see the show again. I need to understand the music and everything one more time. I think, as we've discussed, there's just so much there that we just didn't get the first time through. The show has had several notable performers, including Tom Nellis, Mary Beth Peel, Roger Reese, and Cheetah Rivera. So now let's talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. Uh, theatrical impact. Okay, so I hate to start with, you know, the sad part, but it marked the final work for the team of Candor and Ebb. Uh, now, not the last work that Candor will do, because, of course, we do have the new musical New York, New York mm-hmm. coming this spring, which which Candor, John Candor did, or mm-hmm. is doing, I should say. Um, but it's the final show we'll see of Candor and Ebb. Um, as well, it was the final show for Roger Reese. And I love Roger Reese. I mean, one of my favorite uh, performances of his is actually not on stage. It's on TV when he played Lord John Mulberry in the West Wing. Um, but in learning more about the story behind all this, I mean, he had brain cancer. And he had had two operations and was going through radiation and chemo. And like he was doing all this during the day. And rehearsing at night. 
and he opened the show and he played, but then he started having difficulty saying the words and that's when he had to leave the show. And that breaks my heart so much. Um, because up until the end, all he wanted to do was perform. And right. that's what he did. And, oh, I mean, oh, cancer sucks. It just does. It just sucks. Right. But moving on to a happier note. This was another brilliant performance by the legendary Cheetah Rivera. Mm-hmm. Um, who, she was amazing in this show. I don't know how old she was in this show, but I can tell you she moves like... <laughs> I, age does not stop that woman. <laughs> she was moving around. And I was like, she's just going to rip off that dress and just dance like it's no big deal. You know? Right. Um, also, I think another theatrical impact is that this is a American musical of a German show in the style of epic theater. I, I liked how you had to like map that out. I was watching you do like... I'm my sister's brother's cousin's twice removed uncle. <laughs> no, I think that's a good point because how often do we have, first of all, epic theater, mm-hmm. but an American version of a foreign epic theater? Well, and for a epic theater example to to have been existed and created such a long time after the you know the the epic theater movement. Right, and I find it ironic that. This show was created 10 years after a horrible, horrible world situ- like or event. Or isn't it ironic? And then this show was developed and was being in the works like on the Broadway right in the middle of another horrible world event, 9-11, you know. Isn't it ironic? All right, settle down, Alanis. Uh, the last thing I'll contribute in there is that it added new and interesting music to the theme, to the tomes of musical theater. Again, this music really is, I don't love it, but I certainly don't hate it. It's one of those, like, you hear it and you're like, hmm, huh, you know, and I think that that speaks just absolute, absolute kudos and just Volumes. Volumes about Kander and Ebb. The fact that they've created music that makes you stop and want to think about it. I love music. I mean, I always say I love shows that make you think, that you leave the theater thinking about. How often do we say we hear music that makes us stop and think about it? So, as for societal impact, to me, in my opinion, it brought a dark story to the stage that challenged audiences with a moral question. That was one that we as a society still face today. Essentially, again, it's the trolley question. Are we okay with sacrificing one to save many or a few to save many? Like what what are we okay with as a society? And truly what's I love that we're doing this show now. Mm-hmm. As Knockwood, we're on the tail end of a pandemic because It's a question that has been asked for the last two years. What are we as a society, as as humans, willing to sacrifice? What is the threshold um, for comfort, for life, for survival? Like, what are we... And who gets to decide that? And Mm -hmm. so, man, what what a fascinating, fascinating thing to put forth to our society. 
Right. So I think that leads us into, is this show still relevant? The show is very interesting and difficult. I would say it's best suited for collegiate and regional houses. But as far as Broadway, this is a no for me. I I don't see... I don't necessarily see it being relevant right now. I mean, look, the, the societal impact or the question being posed is relevant, but I don't think that's what audiences want to see is the thing. I don't... Right. I think they want more... Uh, they don't. They don't want to... These aren't the questions they want to ask about their society right now. Because we've been asking them for the last two years. Right. Well, we've been asking them for a hell of a lot longer than that, too. Um, I think that you're right about saying that this is for collegiate and regional houses. Because I would love to see how individual communities out in the world interpret these ideas of greed and community. Yes. Um, And so I definitely don't think that this is a Broadway thing. No. Just yet again. An off-Broadway revival, though. That would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd also be intrigued to see, like, uh, again, a, a new generation. If you look at the names who were involved with the previous production, you know, it's a generation or two ahead of this generation, you know? So what can a new generation do? What if it was younger, if you will? What, what does that look like in a younger person's hands? You know? Right. It just would be it would be interesting to see what else people can what other interpretations people can draw from this story. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we've mentioned it at nauseum. We saw the show the once in 2015. And I remember just kind of being fascinated by the show because, I, again, I didn't know what to make of it. I left just kind of being like, huh. Well, and I've always been obsessed and intrigued by, like, absurdist theater. Yes, you and have. And so this show definitely was up my alley, but I didn't yet quite have the life experience to pick it apart yet. Yeah. Um, I hadn't really experienced... like deep-seated community or just a lot of like the greed themes in this show so I just wasn't in a place where I could understand it but looking back on it um there is a lot more that I begin to understand and all of it came down to life experience which is why this show probably was harder for younger us to get super jazzed about right exactly because it requires a certain level of life experience exactly I think the best uh, story we take away from this uh, is meeting the Cheetah Rivera. Uh, and she was not a walk and sign and just da da da. She took time with every single person. And we got a picture with her, and she was so sweet. And once again, age does not define. Cheetah Rivera. I don't know how old she is, and I won't believe it when she says how old she is, because oh, she looks so good. She was so kind. Um, and I just... She is a living legend. I've... Uh, I was honored to meet her. I hope you'll be able to catch The Visit at a theater near you. 
We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Lovira and Billy Murray. This episode was produced by Sarah Harley. <laughs>